Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. On today in California, what we would call a May gray day. It's a little California thing when the weather starts changing in the spring and it becomes gray for the next week or so. But today I have a guest I'm just actually honored to talk to. She's not your average criminal defense lawyer. She has a nationwide criminal defense practice that specializes in representing people with mental disabilities, including autism spectrum disorder, bipolar disorder, and other mental illnesses such as dementia and intellectual disabilities. She's the editor of four books, All Practical Guides for Defense Attorneys. The first one is representing people with mental disabilities. The second one is representing people with autism spectrum disorder. Third one, suicide and the impact on the criminal justice system. And her latest is representing people with dementia. And all these books are published by the ABA. She serves on the, as a vice president of the ABA's Criminal Justice Section Council. She's co-chaired Criminal Justice Advisory Panel of ARC's National Center of Criminal Justice and Disability and the ABA's Commission on Disability Rights. And she serves on the ABA Criminal Justice Council and Commission on Disability Rights. I would like to welcome, highly welcome, Elizabeth Kelly. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for the invitation to join you, Juliet. No, oh, just I'm I'm so thrilled. Wow, what a what a passion. What a passion you have. I, I've been researching you in the last week and boy oh boy, what a you know, just how how did you get into this area of law? I started out as a criminal defense lawyer and I was assigned one day a very sweet young man who had what we used to call mental retardation. And he was basically taken advantage of by his so-called friends, who were very streetwise, and they had him serve as a lookout to a string Mm -hmm. of burglaries. And Mm -hmm. there was no question but that what he, he was involved. And we were able to work with the probation officer and the court and his caseworker in order to find a sentence that made sense for him and would protect the community. And at the end of that case, if you will, I felt very good about what I had done. And Mm -hmm. I realized that his level involvement, his level of culpability was very different from that of the average criminal defendant. And his caseworker 
started recommending me to other families who had loved ones with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And the disability community is very tightly networked. And I developed a real passion for and expertise working those kinds of cases. And then I had my first client who has what we call a co-occurring disorder. That is to say, with his intellectual disability, he had a mental illness. So I schooled myself on mental illnesses and their nexus to involvement in the criminal justice system. And after a while, it just became the sole focus of my practice and indeed my reason for being. Wow. That's called passion, right? (laughs) That's a passion when you get something in your being like that. Well, I, I very firmly feel that people who have mental disabilities need rehabilitation and help Mm-hmm. not punishment. Right. right. We're going to talk about that towards the end of this conversation because I've got somebody I wanted to introduce you to down the road. So, you know, these, these books that you have written, I mean, I would feel like all lawyers, not just defense attorneys, but don't you feel like how, how has it helped you, you know, in, in doing your job? I mean, don't you think there's a lot of lawyers out there that could really benefit from these books, whether they're a criminal defense attorney or not? Depending upon the statistics that you read, approximately half the people involved in our criminal justice system or criminal legal system, if you prefer, have some sort of mental disability. And by the way, Juliet, mental disability is my global term for mental illness, which includes conditions like major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and also intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorder, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, what we used to call Mm -hmm. mental retardation. So Mm -hmm. people coming into the criminal justice system have serious issues that probably Mm -hmm. impacted their behavior, presuming, of course, that that they committed the conduct that is alleged or close to something that's alleged and will impact how they fare later on in the criminal justice system, whether it's their ability to work with counsel, to enter a plea to serve a sentence, whether it be in prison or a probationary sentence. But the books were written not only for the brand new lawyer, but also for the lawyer who's been around the block a few times and who perhaps is encountering a client for the first time with autism spectrum disorder or who has had a string of, of clients with bipolar disorder and doesn't quite mm-hmm. know how to communicate with them and what experts to retain and what sort of diversionary options might be open to them and what resources there are in the community. Yeah, you actually are hitting on a point which rolling right into my next couple questions here for you. So how how do you persuade a judge and jurors that mental illness is real? There's such a stigma around it. 
How do you, or let's just start with the judge, right? How do you persuade a judge that what you're going through, this, that you're a defendant, your client, that's real? Well, there are as many different responses as there are criminal defendants as well as judges. Hopefully, both the hopefully the criminal defense lawyer has done a good job of working up the case. That is to say, has assembled a team of experts who have given a very powerful evaluation of, of this defendant and identified their mental disability or more likely their, their disabilities. And I'll talk a little bit later, if you will let me, about the importance of understanding co-occurring mm-hmm. disorders. Part of the challenge in the criminal justice system is that the boxes that we have for placing people with mental disabilities are very, very confining. First of all, you have not competent to stand trial. And that is a very low standard to meet. So, for instance, families are always coming to me and they say, he doesn't understand what's going on. How can he be competent to enter a plea, let alone be competent to stand trial? And it's important to remember that the lay definition of competency does not meet the legal definition. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the penal code. Yeah, that the ability to understand and the ability to assist. So that's a low standard and it doesn't get you any place. By the same token, the standard for not guilty by reason of insanity is excruciatingly high. So very few defendants can meet that. So the defense lawyer is left in this huge gray area called mitigation. And hopefully the expert has crafted an evaluation that speaks to mitigation that maybe will persuade the district attorney uh, or the U.S. attorney to back down from the original charges to charge him or her with something less and or persuade the judge um, to minimize any any prison sentence if possible or better yet, to give that person a non-custodial sentence. Couple things before before I, I allow you to ask the thousand questions that I know you have right now. It's important when the expert conducts the evaluation that the expert does a very thorough review of the defendant's past school records, prior history of treatment, interview with family, friends, co-workers, anyone who knows that person. Because what that will do is that will diffuse any skepticism on the part of the judge or the prosecutor uh, and, and convince them that, no, thank you very much, this defendant is not malingering. This defendant is not manufacturing a defense of a mental disability at the 11th hour to, quote, get off on on a technicality. And the second thing you can do 
in front of the judge insofar as possible is cite similar cases where a defendant like your client, meaning perhaps the same mental disability or the same offense, has been offered a non-custodial sentence or um, a prison sentence that is relatively low and perhaps even has appropriate accommodations. So let's talk about, so you're talked about, you know, an expert coming in and giving an assessment and that kind of thing. But let's talk about like when you're sitting in front of a jury and jurors believing and going back to mental illness being real versus it being either an excuse or a way to get out of something. Like how, how do you present in court the ability to say this is real how do you persuade them in that sense, not just through the experts, but through their your defendant sitting there in front of them to believe you? That all depends upon the nature of the mental illness and whether or not the client is on medication and how that client comports himself during mm-hmm. during the course of the trial. And it also depends upon the nature of the crime, because Mm -hmm. if you are going to trial on a charge of murder, the stakes are huge. The victim's family is probably in the courtroom Mm -hmm. and and the sympathies probably lie with with the deceased. On the other hand, what you try and do, again, depending upon the nature of the disability, is separate your client from the act that was committed and basically lay that act at the hands of the mental illness. In other words, but for that mental illness, your client never would have committed the act in question. Mm -hmm. And depending upon the local rules, depending upon the latitude, you try and humanize your client as much as possible. Just as the victim's family is in the courtroom, you try and have your client's family in, in the courtroom. Um, hopefully your client is well behaved during during the course of the trial. Well, I was going to ask you, what do you do when that doesn't happen, right? I mean, what do you, what do, you do when they're not well-behaved because of, and they can't help themselves to well be well-behaved, right? I mean, how do you handle that in, in that situation right in that moment? Well, I know the question was about mental illness, but I'd like to talk about autism spectrum disorder, which is not a mental illness. Sure. It's a neurological issue because that's probably the best illustration. If you have someone with autism spectrum disorder who, for instance, has an inability to make eye contact or who has some nervous tics or who actively stims, which means rocking back and forth or flapping, flapping his or her arms, if they laugh at inappropriate times all of this, for instance, makes makes the jurors very suspicious and think that he or she doesn't care and might even be dangerous. So you would need to have an expert 
testify about the various traits of the of the disability, not only the um, the mental traits of the disability, but also the physical manifestations that could be off putting for the jurors, and right. that that would hopefully assist them as well as the court in understanding that although your client maybe doesn't make eye contact, can't make eye contact. It's not because he's shifty. It's not because he has something to hide. It's just because he can't do it. Right, right. So how do, how do you handle a cross-examination of one of your, your clients? You have to very carefully consider whether or not you want to put your client on the stand. As you know... What if the other side calls them? Well, the prosecutor cannot call your client to testify. Okay. The prosecutor may indeed call call other witnesses who talk about your client's odd behavior, violent behavior, dangerous mm-hmm. behavior. But hopefully you as the defense attorney have other witnesses in addition to your expert who can diffuse that. Mm-hmm. I saw that you had written somewhere, too, that many jurisdictions have fashioned mental health courts and other problem-solving courts that divert people with mental disorders out of the criminal justice system. Where is where are these courts? I have not seen. I've not heard much about this. They are across the country, Juliet, and I think by now really? there are approximately four thousand different kinds of problem-solving courts across this country: drug courts, mm-hmm. mental health courts, veterans courts, reentry courts, courts for prostitution, courts to combat drunk driving, different kinds of juvenile courts which are targeted towards specific specific disorders and traits, young adult courts which have sprung up with a recognition that one does not automatically become an adult at 18, that indeed the, the brain is still forming. So all that being said, mental health courts are specifically tailored to understand a client with a different with with a mental disability and try and get him or her the assistance they need in a concentrated way it's much more intense than regular probation uh, there is a judge or judges specifically designated to preside over these courts. There are robust systems of incentives to reward uh, a defendant who does well and to, to penalize and teach a lesson to someone who does make a mistake. And different courts have different advantages. For instance, in, in some mental health courts, if the defendant successfully completes the, the, the course, then he or she has all charges dropped. So the incentives are huge. Are there jurors? For any of these courts, or are this all through bench? No, no, no. They are they are completely presided over by a judge 
or judges who are specifically designated. There is usually a prosecutor specifically designated to that courtroom. If a client Mm -hmm. does not have his or her own attorney, the public defender's office Mm -hmm. will uh, represent that person during during the term of his or her uh, sentence in in the mental health court. And All of the actors function, if you will, as part of a team. Depending upon the scope of the court, there are also social workers and probation officers. For instance, in veterans courts, there is often a representative from uh, the Veterans Administration. So it's a holistic approach. It is a team approach, and it is done with the idea that if attention is paid to this individual, that individual will not have to suffer. The consequences of the criminal justice system will not be saddled with the collateral consequences of a criminal conviction and will learn how to manage his or her disability for the rest of his or her life and not repeat the criminal conduct. Right, right. You know, I looked up something the other day. You know, there was a shooting that occurred in September 4th of 2020. A boy's mother called 911 to request a crisis intervention officer for her son who had autism and sensory issues. And the officers responded. Police said that, you know, at the time they did have mental health training, but the boy ran. They thought he had a gun and they shot him. And the case ended up settling out for like $3 million. But I saw you also, you know, talked about this crisis intervention training program to teach first responders. I mean, we keep hearing this thing about defunding the police. I'm talking about restructuring the police. Like, can we avoid these situations? with the law enforcement before we even get to trial? I would, I would so hope so. First of all, that parent did something that countless parents are basically forced to do. That is to say they feel that they don't have any resources in the community for their loved one. They have tried everything. They, they feel in danger. So, They call law enforcement and law enforcement responds, not always in a way that is, is helpful. So you, for instance, during, during your question mentioned sensory issues, which is something that many people on the autism spectrum experience. So for instance, if they are sensitive to to loud noises, a police car blaring a siren, uh, mm-hmm. stopping at the front door, officers banging on the door could be problematic. If they right. have if they have problems with with different kinds of light uh, simulate stimulation, mm-hmm. the 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 siren worrying mm-hmm. could could be problematic. The presence right. of a uniform and a badge could be problematic. Right. 
if they don't respond readily to the officer's orders, that makes them vulnerable. They're scared, so they run. And the the laws, the standards for use of force are very deferential in this country to police, understanding that they are often forced to make split-second decisions in what they feel are dangerous circumstances. Mm-hmm. But So we saw that. Well, the answers are complicated. First of all, what would... Are there need to be resources in the community that that mother, that that family member can reach out to other than law enforcement? Mm-hmm. If law enforcement is reached out to, hopefully the person who takes the 911 call can flag that the person that the, there is a person in the home with autism spectrum disorder or bipolar disorder or or what have you. If Mm -hmm. there is a social worker assigned to the police officer, hopefully that social worker can, can come along. If the officers have, have had CIT, crisis intervention training, that, that hopefully should be of assistance to understanding that this person is basically manifesting the symptoms of their disability. They're, they are not a danger. And if the situation is de-escalated and diffused, then mm-hmm. a tragedy can be averted. So, so let me ask you a couple questions regarding like jurors. So, you know, do you feel like jurors feel sorry for someone that might have dementia versus someone, you know, who pleads insanity? Like, have we have we lost our or why do you feel that there's little empathy for those with mental illness when it comes to the court system? Like, especially from a juror's perspective. Again, it depends upon the nature of the crime and, if you will, why that person committed the crime. So if you have a person with a major mental illness who is charged with murder, that will be more challenging for the defense attorney than, for instance, a client with with a mental illness who stole food because he or she was hungry and, and needed to eat. Well, and so do you think the jurors look at that i'm just i guess i'm going back to the juror perspective yeah it and i think seem too, to always have course. empathy for well, that you know and, a lot of empathy for yeah and and two a lot depends upon an individual juror's own experience with mental illness so mm-hmm. for instance you could have a juror who says to him or herself you know my uncle is on the autism spectrum he's kind of weird but I know he'd never do anything violent or Mm -hmm. you could have a juror who says, you know, my aunt is bipolar. And every time my mother gets a call late at night, she fears the worst. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it all depends upon the, the, the individual circumstances and hopefully the, the defense team does a thorough job during during voir dire or jury selection and can extract 
those personal Mm -hmm. experiences and see whether or not that particular juror, in fact, could be fair and impartial. Yeah, that's always a, a that's that's a big challenge in every single case, but I would imagine it's even harder in this arena. But so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the the positive, the transformation. So you, you talk about, you know, the disability community is very connected. Do you feel this is a benefit when it comes to legal issues? Like is are there are there organizations out there that somebody could reach out to? There are many fine organizations, many that have national presences. First of all, the NAMI or National Alliance on Mental Illness. Yeah, we had actually one of the presidents, uh, actually was one of our guests here about a month and a month and a half ago. Oh, good. So you and your listeners know all about NAMI. And NAMI is very active in local communities. Some chapters even even have parent parent groups. And for instance, I've spoken a couple of times at programs sponsored by the New York City NAMI branch, um, which is very engaged in criminal legal issues. Then another organization targeted towards people with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities is the ARC of the United States, which has chapters in every state as well as in many communities and actively provides support for, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, not only in terms of education and direct support, but it also works with the criminal justice system. And there's also an organization called the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is based in Virginia and for years has conducted really cutting edge research about uh, mental illness in the criminal justice system. And a final organization I'd like to mention is ELRID, Legal Reform for People with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, which actively works with parents who have loved ones which are Mm. ensnared in the criminal justice system. Oh, that's fantastic. That that's that, that's some great resources for you know others listening or even just other attorneys. You know, do do you ever have your clients do meditation to reduce stress or calm their emotions? I I don't because I try and stay in my lane. That is to say, I am a criminal defense lawyer, and yoga, meditation, all of that is hugely important, not only mm-hmm. for for the accused, but also for the wellness of the family. Because mm-hmm. the criminal process is a marathon, not a sprint. Right. These, these right. cases can languish for years, particularly yep. because of the pandemic. So yep. it's important that everyone come to the table as healthy as possible at their fighting weight, if you will. Right. 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 And I, I don't know if I've told you or not, but I'm, I'm working on some legal guided meditations to, for people that are in the process to just oh, kind of, interesting. yeah, to really to get them to understand the system. So it's not just a meditation. It's, it's actually allowing them to understand 
legal terms, legalese, things like that, that help them get through the process. So I'm always curious because I just found that meditation myself being in, you know, the business, the legal business, I guess I should say, uh, in the industry has helped me so much just to calm my own self. And I can imagine that would, you know, help others in that process. But, you know, what, what do you, I did see you had a yoga certification. What do you do for yourself to stay healthy and mentally strong? I, I not only actively practice yoga, but I am religious about getting eight hours of sleep every day. I eat well and I I try and keep my life as balanced as possible. I try and draw boundaries. I am very much of the mind that I can't help take care of other people unless I take care of myself. <laughs> Yeah, that was a hard lesson for me early on in the in the process. Let me tell you, if it's you burn yourself out and you're burning out. And and obviously some things are time sensitive. Sometimes mm-hmm. you do have to respond to an email over a three day weekend. When sometimes working on a vacation cannot be avoided, but but nonetheless I try and observe boundaries. I try and maintain balance as much as possible. Yeah, that's, that's, that's key. I always tell people who, who start a phone call with, I'm sorry to call you on a weekend or I'm sorry to call you late at night, is I understand that emergencies don't always happen between the hours of 9 o'clock and 5, five o'clock, Monday through Friday. Right. Elizabeth, I really want to. I really want to thank you for coming and talking today about this this subject. It's it's near and dear to my heart. We are getting ready to launch. We got accepted on the Mental Health Radio Podcast Network, which we're starting here in June. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, very excited about that. So I, I'm really grateful that you came and, and talked to us today. Where where would people find you? I have a website, elizabethkellylaw.com. Elizabeth with a Z, and Kelly is spelled K E L L E Y. And I'm also an active user of LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, I'll see you there for sure. So thanks again. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. You know what? Let's go out and have some compassion, spread some love, and have a great day. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.